Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for season two as we continue to delve into the world of sports coaching. My guests will be presenting their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application and implementation. As always, I'm delighted to have three excellent individuals join me this week. So if you'd like to introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. Hi, Phil. Uh, good evening, everybody. My name is Giles Hegarty. I'm currently Assistant Director of Sport and Head of Rugby at Tudor Hume School in the Northwest. Hi everybody, uh, Paul Westgate, Head of Performance Rugby at the University of Nottingham um, and Level 4 uh, Course Manager. Hi everyone, my name is Ben Wills, uh, I am Head Coach at Reading Rugby Club in Berkshire and I also head up the, uh, the Women and Girls section for Berkshire County as well as doing my teacher training, uh, so that's me. Wonderful. Gents, thank you very much. Really appreciate you giving up your time and coming on. Uh, excited to see what you're bringing to the discussion this week. Uh, just before we get started, a reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb for links to all the content that we discuss and recommendations to other high quality podcasts and content. So, uh, Giles, we'll come to you first. What, uh, what are you going to be talking with us about? Uh, so, um, I'm, I've just spent some time reading a book called The Language of Coaching by Nick Winkleman. Um, which predominantly is a book about uh, strength and conditioning and teaching movement and ways to do that. Um, but I've sort of approached it from a slightly different direction in thinking about the language that we use in and around coaching in general and the impact that that can have, um, not just in terms of skill acquisition, but also in terms of, of culture, performance, development and that sort of thing. Um, and it comes really came off the back of a, a bit of an anecdote, if you like, with um, working uh, in a school as I do. When the rugby season is finished, we have to coach other sports. So I was given the mighty year nine B team uh, football players and was informed by our head of football that um, they were fantastic going forward. But if you expected them to get back and defend, you've got absolutely no chance for them doing that. So... <laughs> We, uh, we sort of sat down with them and said, okay, what do you not like about defending? And the answer was boring, you know, it's tedious, we don't like doing it, it's hard work. But then we just changed the language. Um, and as simple as that sounds, we, we, we just pitched it as, well, we're not defending, we're looking for an opportunity to get the ball and score. And that changed the whole mindset of the group. And in seven games, we only conceded three goals. Uh, it's unfortunate the season got cut short because of the pandemic, because it would have been great to see what else we could have done with them. But it really got me thinking about the impact that, that we can have just by shifting our, our focus in, in what we're saying and how we're saying it. And although, you know, you go through your coaching courses and everyone talks about the challenges of using jargon and, uh, and all the rest of it, actually, by just changing one or two words, the impact that that can have, not just on an, an individual, but on groups as well, um, is something that I've become really passionate about over the course of, of the lockdown in particular. So I got this book and 
Um, Nick's been involved in, in a number of different environments. He worked in the, in the NFL and he's currently involved with, with Ireland Rugby. I don't know whether you came across him in your time there, Phil. Um, but he, he talks a lot about queuing. Now, this book is, it is specifically talking about m- movement. But actually, when you look at it from a skill acquisition point of view, when you're working with, with whether it be rugby, football, hockey, whatever it might be, changing the way that we, we almost set players, participants, pupils up, um, and the timing of those interventions, actually, is that if you become more conscious about it, it is really challenging to be able to step back and, and say, you know what, I'm not going to speak now, or I am going to say just one thing and see how that develops, or I'm going to try and create an association for that one person. So how they might shake their hands or how they can try and move their body to receive a pass. And also it's trying to then record what those cues might be to then reinforce that learning as you move through, whether it be a scheme of work or a curriculum or, or a coaching year to really try and see the impact it can have both on an individual and, and on a group. And having now started to trial it since we've gone back to school with particularly our, our younger, less experienced rugby players, by giving them more personalized cues, we've already seen their skill acquisition has gone up. Um, so that, that really is where, where the, the interest came from. It is a, it's a good book. I would recommend it. Um, it is a little bit wordy and, it, and it, it can be at times a little bit daunting when Nick's talking about um, specifically around movement. But uh, from a skill act point of view and just really trying to become more conscious of the language that we're trying to get our staff to use and, and that I'm using in my practice, um, I think it's a really good foundation. Thanks, Charles. That's fascinating. Just can you talk me through a little bit more around your process as a coach in terms of you recognising those cues and then how you use them to speak with the player or influence the player? Can you just give me a bit more detail around what that would look like for you in a session? Yeah, sure. So I think if, if you're working with someone who is is an experienced player, whatever the sport might be. I think those conversations are very different to, to the novice. And whilst that is a, it's a really obvious statement to make, the way you frame those conversations and the, almost the feeling, like the physical feeling, if it's a skill acquisition, um, if it's, it's trying to get people to scan a little bit more, how we might frame those to give them, to give them cues, um, are, you know, as simple as asking them what are they looking at if they are an experienced player. If they're if they're less experienced, almost in that novice bracket, trying to get them to understand how their body feels in certain situations. And it isn't about arousal levels or that sort of thing. It's not the psychology of it with the with the novices. It's more about how does your body physically feel when you are stood here. What could you change to make that feeling more positive? different um, to then allow you to move forward with that whatever the next movement might be Um, I I do think this it's similar language that you can use around decision making um, with those more experienced players or you know middle band to experienced players again what are you looking for how are you feeling why are you looking for those cues Um, but it's what we have to remember particularly in I think in player development, so with the, at the younger end, is they've got so much going on in their head. And if their sport IQ is not particularly high, 
uh, their sport experience isn't particularly high. Their ability to filter out what they know and more importantly, what they don't know or, or, and therefore don't recognize. I think that's where we as coaches can become very guilty of, of almost expecting them to understand it. And then when they, they don't, we get frustrated, we can get frustrated and it's trying to really simplify things and recognize that we're just given, given one thing to think about one cue, whatever it might be, um, and see how that then starts to manifest itself. So that's the process that, that certainly I try and go through, depending on obviously the level of experience of the player that I'm working with. Would you, in terms of your planning and things, would you be kind of working that out before you go into the session? Appreciate you, you'll know roughly who the, the experience of levels of players you'll have, but are you do you pre-plan some of those questions for certain groups or do you have a structure you work through? And I'll, I'll ask that to you, but I'll come come to Paul and Ben as well in terms of how you guys would, would communicate and, and question and, and draw out things during a session. I think... It's, I'm relatively experienced now in my, my coaching journey. So you kind of know how the physiological and psychological responses you're going to get from players within a session. Um, you know, if you put certain constraints on, there's a reason you've done it and that you, there's a reason, uh, or there's, there's an outcome that you anticipate seeing. So in that sense, it does help to frame the sorts of questions that you might ask. But it's very, I would hope it would be very rare I would ever ask the same question, certainly on an individual level, because you have to accept that you, know, you, are, you, you are dealing with individuals. And I think increasingly now, you know, there's so much been coming out over the last few months on the importance of relationships and that sort of thing, which is, you know, it's a whole different podcast and all the rest of it. But I think it's recognizing the and individualizing those questions and those cues. It might well be the same cue for, for Paul as it is for Ben, but how you frame that is dependent on the individual. Um, and, and whilst, yes, that can come from knowing the group as you go into it, um, I think the biggest challenge for coaches is to be able to recognize that on the fly. So if it's a group you've not worked with before or have limited experience of, still being able to try and draw out how someone can be inspired to recognise whatever those cues are. Paul, Ben, what are your thoughts on that? How do, how do you guys go about that within your, your groups and your sessions? Um, I think it's really interesting uh, to look at the language of coaching uh, everybody. Um, I think uh, making it explicit in terms of part of the coaching process is really interesting because I, I would imagine that some coaches would find that difficult. Um, but uh, you know, one part of language that does fascinate me is the amount of jargon that coaches use uh, and, and, and use jargon perhaps uh, as a way of them not having to be clear about what they mean. And, and that can, you know, if you were to use the phrase blitz defense, that could mean one thing to one group of players and another thing to another group of players. So I always think sometimes that... Um, um, you know, being aware of the language you use in terms of jargon is, is really important. Um, I try when I plan my sessions to also plan my questioning, but I think that's a personal thing because um, uh, certainly in my younger days as a coach and earlier on in my coaching journey, uh, I, I was fairly tell. Um, and, and so asking questions, um, not knowing what was going to come back to me, um, made me sort of fairly vulnerable um, in terms of uh, you know 
coaching what I thought was coaching effectively. But even now, as I say, I still sort of write down those questions um, and I try and obviously ensure that they're very uh, open questions, tell me, explain, uh, describe, etc. how ra rather than the what. Um, but I like uh, Giles' point about individualizing it and framing it to suit the person. And I guess that demonstrates the importance of coaches knowing the players, isn't it? Uh, and knowing, you know, that a turn of phrase with one player may not necessarily be the same or, or achieve the same outcome if used with another player. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting to, to look at the language. Uh, and, and as I say, still, still very conscious of the language I use. But at the same time, um, I, I don't want to sort of be too... Um, uh, the, the, what the word is, but you, know, you want to have a natural flow to your sessions, don't you? you know, I don't want to be sort of thinking too hard about the question I'm asking. I still want that passion, that enthusiasm, that energy to come through, even if it means occasionally I might get it wrong. Ben, how about you? Yeah, for me, for me it's, and I'll relate everything to sort of my coaching journey where I am at the moment at Reading. And so we're level seven rugby club. So in my first season, I was still very green, fresh out of the RFU Academy, as it were, uh, of, of coaching and, and hadn't really developed my own style necessarily. And I would use all sorts of like open-ended questions and self-discovery and, you know, before cards was cards and it was just coaching through games, all of that. And I'd always use really open questions and expect them to respond how I had kids responding in a junior session or an academy session. And some of these lads didn't respond to it at all. Uh, and they were looking for a bit more tell uh, and a bit more directive. So at, at the end of my first season, I had a real reflection and I did a lot of uh, like informal interviews with my players around how they wanted to be communicated with. And one, dumb it down. So just be simple and direct with what I was saying and what I wanted to see, whether that was an open-ended question or me telling them, just be really clear with what we were discussing and this is again just contextually to the level i'm coaching at. i've had different experiences in different environments so keep it simple keep it direct and keep it on point basically on what we're actually doing i think uh that was a really key thing for me and it's something i i now try and use who am i coaching how do they want to be communicated with and am i actually doing that am i actually acting that am i asking questions that will get the best out of the players i have in front of me I think I went too generic early doors in my coaching session and didn't take into account the people on the other end of the field to me who I was actually coaching. I was just like, no, no, I've been told this is the way to coach and I'm going to do it. So now I really reflect on who am I coaching? How do they respond to it? And, and at Reading in particular, we just went real simple. Let's focus on the basics, focus on simple questions, simple answers and get a real clear message because the way we run it at Reading is a whole club ethos. And we were finding we would do a certain level of questioning with first team players and understanding that. And then it wouldn't translate to seconds or thirds. So now we basically have a framework of how we would what want Reading to play and how we would want Reading players to develop. And then in each level of that framework, although the, the message that we're trying to get across will be the same, the detail we can go into is slightly different. And um, so, again, it comes back to understanding the players you're coaching but really understanding how they best operate. Um, so that that's sort of similar to what Giles was saying and Paul as well, where it's just knowing who you're coaching and is the message you're delivering appropriate for the people in front of you. 
are they going to respond to that delivery style or is it something different that you need to do? So with all that in mind, how do you guys overcome the issue of jargon? Is that, is that a, a glossary of terms? Do you just spend a little bit longer when you're first with a group and, and kind of going through that forming stage, explaining that? Because obviously we use it as a shortcut to, to save having to explain it every time, don't you? So in, in terms of from your experiences and advice for anybody listening, how, how would you suggest they go about um, not, you know, avoiding some of the pitfalls around that? Thank for me. Oh, go on, Giles. Sorry. Oh, thanks, Ben. So I think that there's probably there's two bits to that. Firstly, it's if it's led by the playing group uh, within that environment, and therefore it's it's things that everybody at four, you know everybody understands because it's being pushed by the players rather than by the coach down. Or there is a sort of a joint um, agreement on what that jargon might look like over time then I think that that, that certainly ticks a box. Um, I think picking up on Paul's point, he's, he's absolutely right. It, it is often something that we as coaches have used to mask um, a lack of knowledge, if you like. And I think the, that is one of the biggest challenges that in and around jargon is to make sure you know your stuff. You know, if you're going to go out and you, to use Paul's example, if you're going to go and coach a blitz defense, you, you best know, what it looks like and, and you know both in terms of how you would like to coach it but also what the out, what outcome you want to get from it and be able to articulate that if, if you're going to go out there and, and deliver something and um, I think then you can probably get away with bringing some jargon in because it, it goes back to my first point in that you start to get that collective okay well x means x rather than x meaning y z if you like but those are the two biggest things for me uh, yeah, and no, I agree 100% with Giles. I think it's got to be player-led. Uh, I think um, in terms of the bigger picture, I think language is uh, is a symbol, is a part of your culture, isn't it? So, you know, the culture that you're creating, you know, language becomes the glue that sort of binds you all together. Well, at the University of Nottingham, this is how we do things. A blitz defence at the University of Nottingham means this, and the players understand that. Uh, the challenge at the moment, of course, is we've just welcomed uh, 80, 90 freshers into the into the rugby squads. I'm not sure if I can call them freshers anymore, new students, into the rugby squads. Um, and it's getting them up to speed. They're all coming from different backgrounds. They've probably been coached by Giles with England. Uh, so they will definitely be, be unsure on what we would call a blitz defence. But, um, you know, I think... Um, making sure that we regularly we use the same language consistently it becomes part of our culture uh, and we have that appropriate check and challenge so with the new guys coming in and we're doing a session on whatever it might be let's stay with blitz defense you know just checking that the, the new guys coming in that they understand what we mean by check and challenge but importantly perhaps getting the students the existing students to deliver the session so therefore they're then passing on and, and passing on that, uh, uh, that, 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 that meaning, if you like, uh, passing on that knowledge to the new students. I, like, I, I have an identity of jargon at, at Reading. So it's something we've developed over time. And we don't have a playbook by any stretch, but we have things linked into uh, uh, like whole club identity that we're trying to develop. So it's just a way of playing and it is jargon. And if you were new to the club, and we do spend a lot of time with anyone new coming in to not overuse jargon and 
and do it. But in season in particular, we're trying to get everyone playing off the same hymn sheet between ones, twos and threes and have this really interwoven environment uh, so that we can build a, a positive culture, basically, at the club, at training. And we found when different teams were communicating about different things, we just found this this clash when they did come together. And, you know, inevitably at level seven, sometimes you do have threes players playing the twos, twos playing the ones and, and so on and so forth. So we wanted to create a whole club identity and every coach communicates around things slightly differently. So we had to create a language within the coaches where we're all seeing off the same hymn sheet so that every player gets the same information around, you know, game plan, but also the way we talk about defence. Like we were saying earlier, like how do we coach the blitz defence or the drift defence? What is the language we use at our rugby club? And we wanted to make sure the messaging was consistent between coaches so that the messages that players were receiving in different teams was the same. And there was never any opportunity for a misunderstanding when we have to bring players into different environments, different teams, and they were all straight away off the same team sheet. So their connection is instantly better. And then as a result, they're, they're enjoying their sessions more. They're enjoying the environment more because there's less conflict around why are you doing this when we've done this. Uh, and then we see a better cohesion on the pitch on a, on a game day when, when we used to have games. And uh, how, how did you find the coaches bought in? Sorry, I don't want to jump in, Phil. How did you find the coaches um, bought into that? We, you know, we, was, did some feel like they were being dictated to or was everybody on board with it? No, because so we we made it very clear when the coaches signed up and we've got a nice array of coaches at the club with lots of different experiences. All my assistant coaches have way more experience than me, which is a nice nice challenge to have. Uh, I explained the reasoning around it and why we were going to come up with the terminology. And it wasn't dictating how they needed a coach. It was just saying certain terms, this is what we want to hear. So the important bits, the big picture stuff, this is what the terminology I want to use. And after justifying the why and explaining the two, so this has been in particular my third season. So I'm halfway through my fourth season now. So this was after my second season where we really decided to bring these in. And I explained how things had happened the first two years and why we hadn't had the success that really we should have had from a outcome point of view, but also from a numbers point of view at the club, because we're a big community rugby club. We should, we should have been hitting higher training numbers than we were, availability numbers than we were. So explaining the why got them to be, agree to it pretty quickly. And then it was, a, it was a journey as a coaching team to come up with a terminology because we were almost starting afresh that year it was easy to be like, right, well, this is what I think. This is how I want to do it. There's some negotiable areas uh, and others, you're just going to be, this is my head's on the line with this bit and this is what we're going to do. So actually because of that why, and then the journey we went on as a group, there wasn't really any head, uh, reticent. And also the coaching team I have, we've got three very, like the three main coaches, we've got three very different personality types, but we all just love rugby. So I've got a guy called Billy Clark, who some of you may have met in a past life. He used to be a head of academy at London Irish and was at Gloucester for a while. So he's our defence coach. Now, he's just doing it because he misses coaching. Like he's an agent now, he doesn't get hands on with it. So he just loves the fact he can come down to the club, take the piss out of some lads who are very unfit and, and rinse them and just build in a bit of a defensive culture. And then I've got a guy called Lee Goodall, who's the other end of the scale. He's been head coach at Level 5 Rugby Club, so he was at Newbury for five years has then transitioned to wanting just to be an assistant because less pressure and 
more enjoyment. And again, explain the why to them, but as to why we're going to do it. Just got them to understand it quickly as to where we were going with Reading and where I wanted the teams to end up. And that just made it easy. And then it was just a conversation around, you know, terminology. And then I also gave them their own areas to have basically free say, and they could dictate what terminology they wanted us to be communicating. So with Billy, it was mainly defence because he wanted that and I was like fine that's happy happy day so you can come up with that as long as we all agree here and then with Lee it was forward based stuff like scrummaging line out and again I'm not that fussed about that so I had no issues giving him the, the ownership on it and it was just it was fun like we had fun with it we had fun creating it and we had a really fun great season last season from a numbers point of view enjoyment point of view feedback point of view and then also from an outcome point of view so it, I found it relatively easy I just say, Ben, you've basically gone about getting assistant coaches in to do all the bits that you don't like, which I just think is, man, management-wise, it's genius, mate. So You're welcome. Hats, hats off. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. I was like, I just want to focus on attack and take all the plaudits for all the tries we score. Done. Lovely. Ben, Ben, could I just ask you what your why is? You mentioned it quite a few times. Yeah, so we, we want everyone enjoying their rugby Okay, and playing to the same sheet, basically. Why we want that is because when I first joined, there was three teams at Reading. There was three teams and one rugby club, and it was not a nice environment. And I'm all about rugby at this level should be fun. It should be a family. There should be a, a real positive vibe at the club. And it, it didn't exist. It was toxic. It was horrible. At training, I, I, my first season here, I did not enjoy it because there was three different teams, three different coaching setups, basically, and it just didn't work. And it just created a horrible environment. At the rugby club. I wanted to create somewhere people would come to for a positive experience. That was my big why. And that was only going to happen if we brought three teams together rather than having three teams basically fighting against each other. Like you'd have the 13, having players rock up and then keeping them to the 13. We've got four of them in the first team now. They were class. How they stayed in the 13 for two seasons, I have no idea. But that's because they were off in a really like separate lobby. So it was to bring the teams together to create a positive environment where people could come and enjoy themselves. And it would be like an exciting thing to get up to the rugby club. Okay. And then to everyone have everyone on the same page, basically, and working to the same goal. Um, and actually, once we got rid of certain figures, which took quite a lot of it was a learning curve for me very quickly where there was a couple of really toxic figures. Once we got rid of them, that why became really clear to the players as well. And it did show to me that one or two individuals can have a really negative effect on a, a why, basically, and achieving that. Great stuff. Guys, I'm slightly conscious of time, so um, we'll, we'll park that one there. And Paul, we, uh, we'll move on to you. And uh, if you want to uh, explain what you were looking at. Yeah, uh, yes, so um, I've been listening to the High Performance Podcast with Jay Humphrey and Damon Hughes. Um, I didn't know much about podcasts and webinars before lockdown. Uh, then, like a lot of other people, listened to an awful lot in sort of March, April, May, and then got a bit podcasted, webinared out, and sort of now come back to them uh, and accept that actually, you know, both are a really important part of e-learning. So um, I listened to the most recent one was um, with a, a rugby league coach called Sean uh, Wayne, former Wigan Warriors head coach and the new England rugby league head coach, um, talking about his story, his journey from uh, a player with Wigan Warriors, um, 
tarmacking roads, um, coaching Wigan Warriors Academy part-time, working 100-hour week, etc. Um, backing himself, um, sort of backing his work ethic, uh, waiting for his opportunity uh, and eventually getting his opportunity and becoming one of the most successful rugby league coaches uh, ever. Uh, all that um, uh, very much... A, a story of um, overcoming adversity. He left home uh, at 15, uh, talked a bit about the abuse he received uh, from his father. Pretty tough upbringing, wrong side of the tracks. Um, but uh, yeah, it, you know, it's nice that the story has a sort of a, a happy ending insofar as he's now top of the coaching uh, pyramid. Um, so I really enjoy... Um, coaches' uh, journeys, uh, their stories uh, of their learning along their journeys. Uh, as you can see by my extensive bibliography behind me, uh, lots of uh, autobiographies and biographies there from Sebco to Alex Ferguson to, to Eddie Jones. Um, and, and the thing that fascinates me are, you know, how they overcame adversity, how they solved problems. Um, how they got to where they are and the lessons that they learned on the way. So for some by luck, others by, by, by design. Um, I think on the podcast, um, Sean talked a bit about what he thought high performance was. As coach of high performance rugby at the University of Nottingham, I never quite understood what high performance meant. Um, and his description of high performance was uh, looking after the detail on and off the field, which sort of tallies a little bit with Stuart Lancaster's uh, webinar, which I listened to back in March, April, where he talked about the most important thing was getting your on-field, off-field behaviours really clear uh, and, and the expectations really clear. So for Sean, it was all about being relentless in looking after uh, the detail. Uh, they then came to another definition of high performance, which, which I really liked. And I think I can apply to my uh, context, which is um, high performance is when the gap between your best and worst performance continues to narrow. So there's this idea of making progress of going forward, etc. cetera. Um, but some good takeaways in the, in the, in the, in the podcast uh, for Sean, it was important that he was open uh, he talked about only being happy when he was not happy. So he did do his best to explain that. But I think it was a case of, and I'm reminded a little bit about Alex Ferguson here. And even in a rugby context, Rob Baxter, these coaches of successful teams who don't necessarily sit around and pat themselves on the back, you know, the next day, the next morning, they're in the office and they're preparing for the next, uh, the next season. And Shane, uh, Sean, sorry, um, talked about the night before grand final. I think it was Wigan Warriors' last grand final when he met with the CEO. And rather than spend time talking about the forthcoming game and the tactics they were going to use, etc., they started to look at the squad, which players they were going to retain, which players they were going to lose, etc., uh, for the following season, which uh, sounds a bit brutal, but I guess that's an insight to how things uh, are sometimes at that level. So um, a guy who um, very much backed himself, uh, believed in his work ethic, uh, worked hard to improve, 
came across as a really good bloke. Um, and as I say, the golden message running through the whole podcast was look after the detail. And I hear so many high performance coaches talk about the importance of clarity, uh, that your players understand you. And there's a link there very clearly with Giles is the language of coaching, making sure that uh, there's no jargon, that uh, we understand, we, we communicate effectively, we understand each other. Um, and that therefore, as I mentioned earlier, becomes the glue uh, that binds the culture. We know that culture precedes uh, performance, that if we get the, the on and off field culture right, then hopefully the rest will follow. So fascinating. And a final point, um, I love looking at other sports, rugby league. I still think the rugby league run pass catch skills, taking the ball to the line, uh, opening up a, a blitz defence um, is, is better than, than rugby union. And I know possession is different in rugby league. You get to keep the ball, so therefore you can be a bit more um, uh, dynamic, uh, a bit more ambitious with it. But, um, you know, it, it's perhaps no coincidence that a lot of our little three-man, four-man plays that we have now in rugby union uh, had their origins in rugby league. So, uh, yeah, fascinating insight into rugby league and fascinating insight into uh, this, this high-performance coach and his background. Paul, I'm going to jump in if I may. I'm just curious as to, you talk then about high-performance and how, how would you measure that in your environment? You know, you hear a lot of people measure it on results or number of players that push on to the professional game or whatever it might be. At the University of Nottingham, how would you measure your measure performance? Well, I think it starts with uh, having a clear, again, Ben mentioned purpose, you know, having a clear why, having a clear vision. And then if you like um, uh, using that as a benchmark to, to, to what you're trying to achieve, you're absolutely right. So the University of Nottingham would love to be up with the Bucks Super Rugby teams. Uh, we're not there yet. Um, we feel that the gap is closing in terms of our performances over the last two or three years. So, um, you know, to use that definition of closing the gap between your, your worst and your best performances, if that continues to narrow, then hopefully you're improving. So um, we, we set ourselves a vision of... of um, delivering an outstanding program that drives performance, inspires people, unlocks potential. So that, those are the three key things. We then draw down from that, Giles, what does unlock potential look like? Um, what does drive performance look like? Uh, and what does inspiring people look like? Some of it's intangibles. Yep, absolutely. You, we can't measure it. Uh, but if we got a rugby club where we got more players playing the game, we got more players staying in the game where the results are getting better. And, and I think here, for us, a really strong, successful development programme, the byproduct of that will be, uh, will be better outcomes, better results. You can't control other teams and, and their recruitment and how they play. You can't control the weather, the referee, etc. But if at the end of the day, we know that we are creating opportunities that we are progressing and moving forwards, uh, then, you know, for us, I think that's probably one of the ways we're measuring it. Uh, yeah, not particularly satisfactory answer there, uh, but one that we're still looking at and trying and challenging ourselves about. I think that's probably the, 
anybody that can give a direct answer to that, Paul, I, I don't know about you, but I'd be a little bit worried. <laughs> yeah. do, do you think we talk about the intangibles enough? I, I, I find that really interesting. And I, I, I wonder if this is why lots of people traditionally just look at results because it, it's a re, it's the easiest measure, isn't it? And, and everything is judged off of that. And they, they can, you can then ignore the context and all the other things that come with it. Whereas actually the, the nuance and the context and the other bits that, as you say, we can't measure actually become really crucial. So how do we evolve that conversation as coaches within whatever our environment is to be a little bit more around the feeling or, or the reflections or, or those types of things. What do you guys think? Paul, can I just jump on the end of that question and, and add a bit to it? For, for you in particular, you referenced obviously the Bucks Super League. Is it harder for you to focus on those intangibles when you, you're almost, you've got that pressure of that, that goal of Bucks Super League where that's a really clear, definable goal that you're trying to work to? Do you find it harder to focus on those intangibles Phil talked about because of that that sort of elusive endpoint? No, I sort of, you know, I don't know if, if you've all read Bill Walsh's The Score Will Take Care of Itself, but I'm a big believer in the fact that if you can, if you can focus on the process, you know, if you can focus on your standards of performance, uh, if you can build a strong culture, the rest will take care of itself. You know, if we're not... Um, recruiting players who are good enough to play at Bucks Super Rugby, then obviously we, we, we need to look at that. We think we are now. And one issue at Nottingham when I first came there was player retention in the third year. So they would play the first couple of years, really enjoy it, and then say, right, well, I'm on a uh, very academic degree, so I can't play rugby this, you know, my last year. Just when you need them, just when you've invested in them, just when we need that older team, if you like, to play. So... No, I mean, I, we try really hard to focus on, on, on the process and let the score take care of itself. And I think that removes a little bit of stress and pressure from it, if I'm going to be honest, Ben. To come back to Phil's point about intangibles, um, the big tangible we got when you talk about the intangible of enjoyment, the big tangible of that is that how many of these players stay in the game when they leave university? Now, they may go to Buck Super Rugby University, reach the pinnacle of their playing career, be injured or fall out of love with the game and leave the university and not carry on playing. I haven't got any statistics of that, but I'm sure that happens. At, um, it probably happens at our place as well. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that um, if the players have had a really positive experience at university and carry on playing when they leave, then for us, that's one of the big tick boxes. But those other intangibles, you know, we spend just as much time focusing on life skills, leadership skills, uh, being with their mates, um, uh, you know, just uh, enjoyment, uh, commitment, uh, the core values. I mean, some of these things we can't measure, but you sort of know if they're there, you sense they're there. And Phil used the word feeling. And sometimes you could be in an environment and just sense that the guys are engaged are all on board here. Equally, you could be in an environment, perhaps when you first went to Reading with three different teams, and you can sense straight away, hang on, there's a bit toxic here, that they're not sort of engaged. And then obviously you then have to set, set about putting that right. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm pleased to say we do focus on the process and we do focus on, on those intangibles. And we do our best to be um, uh, to have as many uh, things we can measure as possible, because at the end of the day, I have to produce <laughs> some 
you know, my rugby review to my line manager to show that we are moving forward. And as much as I like to say, well, there's lots of rugby players that are enjoying their rugby here. Uh, yes, that's interesting, Paul, but why do we only come third this year? You know, so, yeah, still a hurdle to overcome. It's really interesting. You know, you, the, the, pe the people that Paul has referenced there, that Bill Walsh, Stuart Lancaster, Rob Baxter right now, his biggest push in everything that I've read and seen about him has been the human element. You know, and although it is an intangible, I think increasingly you look at the teams that are high performing, the culture that they have, you know, culture inverted commas, however you want to describe it, is such because they take so much care of that human element. Um, you know, Walsh would talk, he talks in his book about, you know, treating the receptionist as the most important person, just like the quarterback is. Bruce Arians, who's at, is at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers now, if you've watched the All or Nothing when he, when he was with his previous team, he talks about family first for his coaching staff. You know, he would rather fire someone than allow them to miss a, a recital or whatever it might be for, for their kids. And it is an intangible, but it is so underrated in high performance, I think. Um, and particularly, you know, maybe less so at the sharpest end, but you step down a tier, you know, you go into, into level two, level three in rugby, and I think the human element can quite quickly disappear. Certainly, in the experience I had in level three, that was the case. Um, I think also, Giles, if those intangibles aren't there, eventually they will be reflected in the results, yeah. won't they? Yeah, I completely agree. So, so I guess you could say they can't be measured, but you know, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. With for me as well, I've seen it at my level, I've seen it at level seven and level eight, where it's to a different extreme, but the, the one that really always jumps out for me, which I never I never understand it at the lower levels, like level six, level seven. Basically, any time someone's not getting paid is, there's always, if you don't make training, you don't get selected. And for, like, that is, that's absurd. Like, I don't understand why a level seven, level six, level, even level five coach would say, if you don't make training, you don't get picked. That's not an incentive to come to training at all. That's, that's, a, that's a fear mechanism. And it takes away from the fact that you've got plumbers, carpenters, teachers, you've got dads, you've got mums, you've got boyfriends, you've got girlfriends, whoever it is. Life is going on just because Tuesday, Thursday evening doesn't fit in with, with their, their crazy, especially at the moment, lives. How can, you, how can you possibly say if you don't come to training, you don't play? You didn't make training, which will be sad about. And as a result, I'm going to punish you and take away your hobby. It's just, it's crazy. And that's completely forgetting about the family. So all the way up from top to bottom, you see it. And it's just crazy to me. Why would you ever do that? It's just rugby. I think they're all really good points. I'd, example that sprung to mind when you guys were talking about that was there was uh, a football manager, and I, I can't think of his name, but he basically came out in an interview with a newspaper uh, verbal interview, so it was recorded, and, and was saying, oh, the, the goalie's made an error. And um, I think the goalie had made like three errors in the last three games that had all cost the team goals and, and to the, the manager's mind had lost the team the game. And straight away, you're kind of going, alarm bells are ringing. Surely one mistake hasn't cost you the game. Like there's a lot of other things that have got to lead up to that happening. And he said, oh, you know, I've had a, I've had a quiet word with him in the changing room. Um, and I've told him he's basically got a man up. And then this is me publicly giving him the, the man up statement. And it just, I mean, yeah, Twitter exploded with it because it was just horrendous to, to think that 
you even need to share that. Okay, yeah, I've spoken to him. We've had a chat and he's great. I, 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 the, the logic of them coming out and publicly kind of just harassing this guy even further just was just pretty bizarre, to be honest. And you, you do wonder how often that happens at, at all levels in all sports. And I guess with the cycling and the gymnastics stuff, we, we see a lot of that at the, the very top end at the moment. But it would be... Yeah, I'm, I don't know, concerning perhaps at how often that, that might happen and, and how that looks at the, the community end of the game as well. I think that also is a reflection of our media feel. Um, but interestingly, you know, Sean Wayne talked about the coach taking responsibility if the player makes a mistake, if the player doesn't perform. And, I'm, you know, that's reminded me that I think Jose Mourinho has said similar as well. And some of these top coaches will will look at themselves first uh, rather than, you know, castigate the player, uh, as you, you mentioned your example there in public. Yeah, I think, I think Mourinho is pretty well known for that, isn't he? And, and actually, weirdly then got panned because everyone's going, well, why is he defending a team that played horrendously? And it's just like, is no one seeing the logic there? Why would he come out and slag off his own team that he's got to work within the week to play better? Like, he's not going to do that. And as you say, maybe that's just down to some pretty poor questioning or just trying to fill up some column inches. I don't know. But even I remember I had that when I was at Nuneaton would, would speak to the, the local press after the games. And uh, I'm not even sure I, it certainly wasn't deliberate. It was just kind of an offhand comment about one of the lads probably didn't have his best game. And it went in the paper, in the article and a couple of the boys messaged me going, not sure why you felt you needed to say this. And and I held my hand up and said, yeah, no, it, it definitely shouldn't have been said. And and spoke to the lad on Tuesday night and said, I'm, I'm really sorry that that wasn't on. And it, it certainly wasn't a deliberate attempt to use the the local press for, for whatever it's worth to, to try and spur him on. But it, yeah, there's definitely a pitfall when it, when it comes to that type of stuff. Like, I think as well, Eddie Jones is actually, whether you like him or not, he is very good at that side of the game. I think he does manage pressure on his players very, very well. And, he, you know, he does it by making those controversial comments that sometimes are a little bit over the top. But it does always detract from the players and pulls them onto them. And I, I, I think that's a great way to deal with your players because, again, it brings it back to they're just people. And you're right, like the media they stay, but also, so I like considering I'm meant to be of that social media age, I, f I fucking hate social media or I bloody hate social media. Like, it's just so negative. Like, it, even with the Barber stuff this, this week, okay, the players have made a mistake, they've messed up in, in very complicated and confusing times. But some of the stuff on Twitter, it's just completely torn these players apart with like all sorts of insults and threats. I'm just like, they're still just people. They've made a mistake. Okay, it's just a bit more public. And I, I just, I can't stand the media. So I think any coach that takes steps up and goes, no, nah, it's on me, is just awesome. Straight away, it's, like, it's a point in my book. Out of interest, I often think to myself, whenever England pick a squad for the you know any international that this happens, that Eddie Jones gets panned for seemingly not picking players that the public or the press are talking up. So in any of your guys' experiences, have you ever come across a coach 
that, that genuinely would not pick somebody because everyone else is saying they're going to do a good job because the logic just seems bizarre to me that number one Eddie Jones would really care about what the public think or what the press think but actually that it would have that big an impact they're going to go no 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 I'm just going to do this to piss everybody off I find staggering so I, I would be I, I always go to tweet it and I'm no 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 just park it like leave it alone but I, I'm interested do you think that is even a remote possibility or are people just being yeah, a bit dumb. I've never seen it in the press, but I have worked with someone who chose not to pick a player because um, everybody else within the group was saying that he was the kid that we should be picking. Yeah, and it, it was, I mean, it, it's the sort of thing that still comes up. We're talking a decade ago, and it's something that still comes up in conversation between those of us that were involved. Um, and ultimately, it came. It then led to a, the kid being not being appointed captain for that season, when everybody was like, "This is the kid who should be captain." You know, he is he is the one that we should be putting in. But because everyone was pushing it, the bloke was like, "No, I'm not doing it." So I have I have seen it. Yeah. That's I, that is awful. Yeah. What, what was I, the, I, on the kid? Did, 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 did that get back to the player? Did he know that? Oh, everybody. It was obvious. Yeah, uh -huh. it was obvious. And, and you know, credit to the to the young man. He he rolled up his sleeves and he just did his job on a Saturday, but he wasn't really involved in the team. You know, he was involved with his mates, but, you know, he'd rock up, play his games and then leave. And, uh, you know, talking to that individual not recently, but certainly in the short time after that, he would, was the first to admit that it really, it put a down on his, on, uh, it was his last year with the team. And, um, it certainly put some, some downers on it. Yeah. On the, on the Eddie Jones one though, Phil, I, I don't believe he doesn't pick these players because the media are talking about them. I think he has a way he wants to play and a balance to his teams that he wants. And, the media just unfortunately like these X-Factor players who are playing incredibly well, but it just doesn't fit into how he wants to coach the game and how he wants his team to be balanced. And he just loves the fact that the media are like, oh, you're not picking it because of us. He's like, yeah, sure. Let's, let's say that. Let's go with that. Absolutely. And he just loves it. And I, I love the game. I think that side of it, the game between Eddie and the media, I absolutely find it fascinating. I enjoy watching it. It's the same with Mourinho and, and any coach. And I'm sure everyone's, uh, or a few of you may watch the playbook episodes on Netflix. There's some like moments in that as well where they they're just playing to the media and they like the battle. And I think that's brilliant because it's a personality, right? We want that from our coaches. That's just a personal. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting when I mean I think for the majority of players, everyone's going to have their their views, aren't they? You know, player X should be in, player Y should not be in, etc. I think where it is interesting is when you get some Mavericks, uh, non-conformist, Kevin Peterson uh, in, in cricket, uh, Danny Cipriani in rugby union, uh, Bale, you know, at Real Madrid. You know, that's where it can be really black and white, isn't it? You can get a lot of people that say, you know, he shouldn't be picked or, you know, or, or he should be picked. I think then I wonder sometimes if, you know, in the coaches here, the managers here, you know, they are listening to what the public uh, feeling is about them. Um, because for me, there's not enough exciting creative players in the game, full stop. Um, and that's not a, that's not a, a reflection on, on, on those that are selecting uh, the, the teams, but um, 
I do feel that the way a lot of sport is going nowadays, very structured, very organised, very prescriptive, very predetermined, uh, very certain, very predictable. How many words can we use all mean the same thing? But, you know, um, I, I do worry that we're fitting, we're, we're selecting players to fit into those little round holes rather than that square peg saying, actually, this guy can bring something a bit different. Is that, do you think that's pushed by results, the pressure to win? Uh I think it is, but I think also, um, you know, and let's let's pick Exeter. You know, I think the most successful rugby team in the Premiership and in Europe is the most structured team. That you know, Exeter have their playbook and and they will play to it. And and you can't be too critical because Rob will say, I'm pretty sure on Ali that well, hang on, we're playing to our strengths. You know, but you know, they've almost created. We talk about culture. If we just shorten that word to cult. They've almost played a cult down there that this is how they play. The players buy into it 100%, first, seconds, academy, etc. They all buy into it. They all support each other. They all want to play that way. You know, and the sum total of uh, two plus two is 10. I mean, it's massive. I mean, they are just, you know, uh, so, so organized and so structured, but yet so successful. So I think um, other sides see that, Giles, and potentially think, well, we now need to be a bit more structured in what we do from a penalty kick in the middle of the park, you know, um, yeah. All very interesting. I, I would love it if somebody was, I think that was the real shame about the season being curtailed and then, you know, being kind of sandwiched in at the end is we missed that opportunity with Saracens relegated just to see the shackles come off some teams maybe. And I, I would love to see it go the other way and some teams being a Bath fan, you just you look at a, a team like that and go, yeah, you got some great forwards, but you probably got one of the best backlines in the country. Maybe just play a bit more. You get back to being that kind of Bath team of the early 2000s and and just having a little bit more free-flowing. Maybe that's the solution to to beat structure. I don't know. And there'll be, there'll be purists on both sides that maybe listen to this, maybe don't, that we're pulling their hair out going, it's one or the other. But yeah, I'm not sure. Interesting. But then did, what, did Wasps not do that, Phil? Did Wasps not just come out and be like, we've had a terrible season, let's just go for it, let's go play rugby? Like they, I think they play some awesome rugby. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, again, I think you've got, to, you've got to look behind the scenes at a lot of stuff, haven't you? And what might look unstructured to us might be quite structured. I, I genuinely don't know. But um, yeah, no, I think in terms, of, in terms of the excitement they brought to it, you'd definitely say they've, they've done a great job there. So, mm. Um, again, conscious of time, so we're going we're gonna to shift it on. Ben, we're coming to you. Uh, what were you looking at? So, again, it's the high-performance podcast that uh, Paul referenced earlier. Um, and it was a, an episode that really resonated with me from Johnny Wilkinson, who obviously needs no introduction. And I think it's been well publicised in the press. He's been actively involved in talking about mental health and emotional well-being uh, and physical well-being as a result of that as well. And this is what this podcast basically focused on around mental health and the reason I, I picked this one I've listened to a lot around mental health recently due to some personal reasons but also with the current climate and my rugby club with obviously COVID sport I don't think has ever been more important but also ever more challenging also because it's so different to everything we've had before and I'm going to come back to that sort of why we're doing stuff. But I'll just explain what he basically discussed on the podcast. And he was essentially saying he was he was like uh, traumatized and tormented throughout all of his or the majority of his professional career. Uh, and it was predominantly through 
pressure, pressure that he put on himself and pressure that he set himself through setting these huge goals and then putting him through uh, pain, basically, putting himself through pain and neglect, but through repeated practice and pressure to get to that end goal. Uh, and how he talks about it is, you know, through suffering, he started to have success. So he'd go out and do the hours, do the reps, go and play the game and feel all this pressure about he had to reach this level of performance. And because he would start to reach these levels of performance through suffering, it, it almost enveloped itself. So we then go, OK, if I put myself through more suffering from an emotional and, and physical point of view, I'll be able to achieve more success. And he started to keep on setting these big goals that he had to then go through this, this process to get to. But all the while not enjoying the process because he had set this goal in his head. He needed to get to it under every cost and he was going to go through X, Y, Z because it had proven in the past and he knows if he puts himself through that, he'll be able to reach that goal. But what he then talks about is getting to that goal and the ecstasy you feel in that mo moment is there for a fleeting second and then it's gone. And then he has to set himself that next goal to go and reach that moment again. But the, all the while he's been in pain and in torment, basically. So through mental health issues, through stress, depression, anxiety, he sort of lists them all off. And what he says is now where his headspace is, is it's all about the moment and enjoying the moment. And he's like, if you set yourself a goal, you are setting yourself something to strive for, but you're also setting a glass ceiling. It was like, whereas if you don't set that, and just go, in this moment, I'm going to be the best I can be. I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to try things. I'm going to try and get better and better and better and just enjoy this moment. Nothing else matters except for this moment now. And you'll feel enjoyment in that process. And then the next day you come out and do it in the same. And you, you're never setting a ceiling to a point of your potential. You're not limiting your potential by setting this goal. You're almost taking the ceiling off and you can go wherever you want with your potential. And as a result, have more fun, enjoy it, and have less pressure, less negative, which then come game day, you're probably going to be in a better place mentally to go out and perform. Where he was getting to a point on a game day after setting all these goals and, you know, listening to the press around trying to get to this point of, you know, Johnny, the Johnny Wilkinson effect, trying to get back after injuries to the point he used to be at because he knew he'd gotten there rather than going, I'm going to just go and try and be good again and try and enjoy my rugby again. He kept on trying to get to these never-ending points and the pressure just built and built and built. And there's a section in the podcast where he talks about uh, one day, he, it was before a Six Nations game, I think he says, and he didn't want to leave the hotel. He rang his mum, his dad, his coach, is it uh, Blackie, is it? I think he describes it. I can't remember his actual name. It, everyone to try and get out of going to this game. And the fact he even made it to the game was a success. And he was like, I put myself under that much pressure it took away any enjoyment in the process. And I never really got to a point where I enjoyed anything to its fullest because there was always the next thing. It was like winning the 2003 World Cup, pure ecstasy, but only for a split second. And then already it started creeping into his head. I've got to do it again. I've got to go again. I've got to get to the next stage. I found it really fascinating because at the moment, we are doing all this. We're, we're training at Reading. We're doing training sessions two days a week. And we've been going since, you know, usual pre-season would start. And, but there is no goal. Like, we don't know anything that's coming, essentially. The government and the COVID and the restrictions that the RFU are saying, there is no goal for us to achieve. So trying to find the reason as to why we're training 
has completely changed for us and it really hit home with me because i'm like that's what we need to be focusing on i've been sort of I, I use the metaphor as a lost ship with where i'm trying to keep the ship going and afloat but i don't really know where we're headed i haven't got a bearing so but that podcast made me think actually it, it doesn't matter i have no control of where we're heading at the moment because it's dictated to by government by covid by rfu but what i can do is make sure every session in that moment the boys enjoy themselves as much as possible have as much as fun as possible and develop as much as possible in that moment so they come and wait and they're excited for the next moment and then in that moment we can just like there's not, nothing we're going for so let's just try everything let's enjoy it let's have a fun let's have fun with it let's develop let's have a laugh and then if we're here next tuesday let's go again and it's something that's really hit with me from a personal level and also just from the coaching level but that is now my aim i just need to make sure every time the boys come down to the club they're going to enjoy the moment because that will keep them coming down to the club so that that was basically the the, the theme of the podcast i think that's brilliant uh, ben and it's bring bringing back to that word phil used earlier about intangibles isn't it you know the enjoyment now is is, is, is one of your kpis isn't it in in, in your training in your sessions we're in a situation under covid where we got no idea to the finish line so you can't plan. So, you know, we've got to choose to be in the present. And what does the present mean? Well, the present means for all of us here as rugby coaches that the group of guys that we coach or girls at Oxford that we coach uh, have as positive an experience as they can, you know, at, at, at that moment. Um, I think, Phil, you had Richard Cheatham on not so long ago. And I remember Richard... I had a chat with Richard because we were going around saying, oh, have you listened to this webinar? Have you listened to that podcast, et cetera, during, during lockdown? What have you done during lockdown? What skill have you learned? What, you know, how have you got better during lockdown? And he just turned around and said, well, for many people, it's just getting through the day. And I think that's, that's, that's the same message, isn't it? You know, what matters is making your own life sustainable every day. But what matters is us living in the moment. So last summer during pre-season, I gave the, or I invited a, a sports psychologist person to do a mindfulness session with a rugby guy. So you can imagine, you know, 30 guys crammed into this sort of small lecture theatre, you know, and this lady comes, a very quietly spoken lady of a certain age. And I just put my head thinking, no, this is going to end up all horrible. No, you know, they're going to be making funny noises and, and not be the mature, responsible students we'd like them to be. But you could have heard a pin drop during the 45 minute session. And she did a couple of little things with them about centering yourself in the moment and you know, very sad story, if you like, what you were sharing there with Johnny Wilkinson. But at the same time, massive takeaway there that, you know, let's manage the present. Let's not plan too far ahead because we can't control that, can we? But we can control what we're doing now. And it, oh, sorry, go so, on. Sorry, Ben. I think it's, you're absolutely right, Paul, and Ben, you as well, talking about the trying to create a positive experience for the, for the, guys and girls that we are working with on a daily basis but I think it's also just as important to make sure that the coaching staff you know we as the coaches are doing that as well I mean you know you personal experience just sitting there listening to what you're saying about Johnny Wilkinson when I was coaching at Macclesfield I hated every second of it. I, it three and a half years when I got sacked it was almost a relief because it was just so miserable. Um, and when I look back on it now, there are so many things that I would have done differently to make sure that I could enjoy. You know, when I remember winning the league 
and being like, wow, this is amazing, but let's look at the next, you know, what's next? We've got to we're going up into national one next year. We're going to have to do this, that, and the other recruitment, all the rest of it. And it was literally, you know, that, that kind of pressure, which at level three is ludicrous. Uh, I, I hasten to add, but I guess that the key thing is that whilst we have to, yes, absolutely invest in our players, invest in the people that, that make the club function and all the rest of it, but we've also got to make sure that the coaching staff are having a good time as well. Um, because ultimately if, if they're not doing it, they're not going to be being able to push out a message is going to become increasingly difficult and, and totally unsustainable. Yeah. Like I completely agree with that. And last season was on paper, my most successful season at Reading, uh, we finished, we ended up finishing second and we lost in the virtual playoff um, with the other team. And throughout that season, I was expecting, and we went, I think we went 13 games unbeaten and I was expecting this moment of relief or enjoyment. And it never came because I'd set this goal of I must get promoted. And the pressure I put myself under on a game day was awful. And I, it's something I've worked very hard on to control my emotions. And I work with a psychologist and a counsellor myself to affect, like control my behaviours. But there was, there was the only games I really enjoyed in, in that moment was games where I'd gone, you know what, the, the boys have played really well this week. I'm just going to go and enjoy this game of rugby. I'm expecting to see something good. And I didn't really care about the result. And there was two or three games where I just came and was like, Guys, I'm buzzing to see you play. Like this game is just exciting. Like we might not win it, but I'm buzzed about it. Like there was a game where we played a team that had been unbeaten, and I was just excited about the challenge. I didn't really care about the result. And those are the games our season that I enjoyed the most. Where actually I was like, results kind of irrelevant as long as we go out there and play and have some fun. That's awesome. Whereas there's other days where I'm like, and it's a local derby one in particular for me. I'm in bits. I'm hating it from the moment I wake up to the moment the whistle go finishes. I hate it. And if we win, it's not like a feeling of joy. It's thank fuck. Thank God we won that game. Like, it's never a, like a feeling. And I'm exhausted. I go home and I'm knackered. Uh, and it, even just this period of, of reflection since COVID's hit, the, the big thing I kept on telling myself last season was I wanted an, an Andy Dufresne moment where he's on the ceiling, he's on the roof of the prison where he's got all the guys a, a beer and he sits in the corner just watching them drinking with like a weird... And I, in my head, I kept on telling myself, that's the moment I'm striving for. I want that Andy Dufresne moment where I can just sit back and look and feel relief that the boys have done it, the boys got promoted, the old boys are happy. And that's ridiculous. Like, my, my goal should be to have fun in the job I'm doing. And enjoy it. And it's only really this season where COVID's come and changed everything that we realistically know at level seven and at a community level rugby club where I'm I'm buzzed every training session and I'm loving it because I'm like, there's no fucking games. This is great. We can do whatever we want. Yeah, sorry, Paul. No, Ben. So just to come back to, to Johnny Wilkinson, um, yeah. did he give any, uh, did he talk about um why he didn't talk to anybody during those difficult times I'm, I'm quite curious to know that um was it his reluctance to share or was there just not the opportunity to do that or was it because that wasn't the done thing then it's really fascinating he he talks about it in real confusing detail he he said at that point in time his self at that point, his true self at that point in time, didn't need to talk about it 
because he believed what he was doing was the right way to behave. And the emotions he was feeling at the time was what he should have been feeling to gain that goal. So he was so driven by that goal that he didn't, he couldn't process at the time that this isn't how you should be feeling. And he talks about, he's like, he doesn't regret not doing it because those at the time, at that time, it was the right decision to make based on how his being was at that moment. And he, he says, the opportunities were probably there if I felt like I do now back then, but I didn't. At that point in time, I believed, I truly believed I had to go through that pain and that suffering to reach that end goal. And he's obviously an extreme case where he probably did reach that end goal. He won the World Cup. He probably was one of the best players in the world at some point. And he does reference his success because at that point in time, he truly believed that was the way to work. So he didn't realise he was not happy until later on in his career where he got to a point where he could go, actually, this isn't great. And it almost took the experience of the, and he uses the term suffering, and then to get to a different point in his career where he started to enjoy it more and caring less about his standards and himself, but more about the environment and the team enjoying themselves, to, to realise actually it was unsustainable what he was doing before. I, I think the key thing comes out of all the conversations, certainly Johnny mentions it a number of times, and, and Ben just touching on the bits you've talked about, is when we seek something, I would argue we're heading down the wrong path because just by, by definition, by seeking, we're putting ourselves in a position where we think there is an outcome that's controllable. Actually, that, that internal journey, as soon as I think, and certainly my experience is when you stop seeking, is when you actually put yourself in a position to really value the experience for the sake of the experience. And, and that puts you in a completely different, I guess, mental and kind of physical state, whether you separate the two or not. But yeah, I, I do think there's a lot around that, that we're society almost schools us to think that we've, oh, you know, we've got to have X goal and Y goal. And when I get my car and my promotion or whatever, that will, that will, you know, get promoted in the league or we sign that player, I'll be happy. Um, I don't think it works like that. And I think he, he would, you know, the journey he's been on and other people that have been on similar would, would probably go, you've got to just flip that and look internally. And, and there is no, you know, finish line. Um, there is nothing that, that in the material world that can make you happy. There's experiences that will bring you joy and, and feelings and, you know, create the, I guess, the chemicals in your brain that, that will elicit some of that type of stuff. But actually, is, is that true happiness? I'm, I, I would argue pretty strongly it's not. So, yeah. Uh, guys, we'll go, we'll go around the table quite quickly for these, but uh, recommendations, what are you suggesting people take a look at uh, for some other content? Giles, we'll come to you. Uh, different to what we've already talked about. Yes. Um, I would recommend that people have a look at Jocko Willink. Uh, he's got an amazing podcast. Uh, he's written two or three really, really interesting books. Extreme Ownership, I would definitely recommend um, particularly picking up on on some of the points we talked about earlier about people taking responsibility. Um, he's you know ex Navy SEAL. It can be a bit testosterone driven at times, but there's some uh, some really good stuff in there. Love that. I'll uh, I'll look out some of the links and I'll bang those in the blurb for anyone that wants to check that stuff out as well. Uh, Paul, coming to you. What are you suggesting people take a look at? Well, I think going back to, to the High Performance Podcast, I mean, there's some really good stuff on there, in addition to Johnny Wilkinson and uh, uh, Sean Wayne that we've, we've 
Ben and I have uh, talked about this evening. Um, uh, Frank Lampard's on there, the new Chelsea coach, you know, talking about 100%, the, the coach or manager taking 100% responsibility, uh, but also acting and being humble, which uh, must be very difficult to be to do in, in professional football. I think Steven Gerrard's on there, Ben Ainsley's on there. So some really good, uh, very successful uh, sportsmen and women, uh, as well as successful coaches, and just them sharing uh, their journeys with, with, with other coaches. It's absolutely fascinating. Lots of takeaways. Great stuff. Thank you. Ben, what about you? Yeah, for me, like I'm real visual at the moment, so the playbook on on um, in Netflix, if you haven't watched them, there's six really great episodes with six very different coaches from all sorts of backgrounds, um, all of them great. The one for me in particular is, I forget his name right now, but Serena Williams' coach is fascinating. And then there's Doc. Doc Rivers, exactly right. Him, I'm not going to try and pronounce it. Uh, and then I think it's Doc Rivers, the NBA coach. Those two for me were particularly interesting um, from a personal point of view. Um, but yeah, I would recommend those. And also, just a sub point, I'd recommend any coach of a similar sort of journey to me go and try out some counselling. You'll understand your players better if you can understand your, your, yourself better. So fantastic. Uh, gents, thank you very much. Uh, some really, really great insight there and uh, a fascinating conversation. So I'm going to round up the roundup. We hope you find it useful. Thank you to my guests for the insight again. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. Uh, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. Thank you.